Question, what is the most important book in the Bible? What is the one book that ministers to you the most, encourages you the most, or gives the most revelation? Uh, what is the most important book in the Bible? The answer is whatever book you happen to be reading at the time. And I just happened to be reading in 1 John, so that's where we are tonight. Uh, 1 John, chapter 1. 1 John can be sort of summed up in these verses that are in chapter 5 of 1 John. In fact, the whole Bible can kind of be summed up by the verses that are in 1 John, verse 5, starting with verse 11. It says, and this is the testimony. This is the testimony that God gives concerning his son. This is from the mouth of God. What God says, what God testifies concerning his son. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. God has given us eternal life. You can't earn it. Uh, you can't do anything to keep it. God has given us eternal life. Eternal life. Not just length of days, the fact that a million years from now we're going to be alive and doing whatever, but quality of life here and now. Just life, eternal life. And God has just plain and simple given it to us. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So this letter, this tract that, that John wrote was not written to unbelievers. It's not an evangelical tract. It was written to people who believe. He says later on, he says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. This is for us. It's personal. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know, thank you, Lord. He's writing these things, not, you know, not just so we hear about it, uh, you know, consider it, ponder it, wonder about it, but John is writing these things, and this is the testimony of God that we know that we have eternal life, that we can be secure in that, and knowing that nothing can take it away from us, nothing can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus said. Uh, we can't lose it. God never changes his mind. He's writing this so that we know that we have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God, that we continue in him, that we abide in him. Uh, John was given incomprehensible revelation through the gospel, uh, through his writings, his epistles, through the book of Revelation. Uh, he, he was just given all these visions, and, and plus he was given the ability to take these visions that are incomprehensible and write them down in language that we can understand that we can comprehend. And, and John was, he was also a good writer. And his relationship with the Lord was personal. You can tell that through his writings. You know, if you read the Gospels, it always seems like John was always right there with Jesus. You know, when they were eating, John was always right here. You can kind of picture Jesus and the disciples walking down the road and like a, the whole crew and some of them are kind of back here and some of them are here. But you always kind of picture John being right there, 
right next to Jesus so he can hear and listen and just be with him. John was the youngest of the apostles. And he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in in the gospel he wrote. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it wasn't that Jesus loved him more than the other disciples. Uh, it was just that he knew. He knew the love of God. He knew by being with Jesus and being that close to Jesus, he knew that Jesus loved him. He just refers to himself. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And in John, there's different themes throughout John. One is, and the most important one, is love. John keeps using that word over and over and over again, love. And that word is agape. Um, People uh, have been, I was watching a thing on uh, Netflix about people who are traveling around the country looking for UFOs. And they just go everywhere and they're constantly searching the skies, hoping to see a UFO, hoping that we are going to be contacted by some alien life form. And they do that because everybody has that hope that there's something more than just this life, than just this existence on earth, that there has to be something more. Um, I don't believe we've ever been contacted by UFOs, um, but we have been contacted by something totally alien to this planet, and that's agape love. There, There is nothing more alien to fallen humanity than agape love. It's from another place. Um, kind of an illustration I was thinking of, of agape love. I had to bring my mother to a, a doctor's appointment, and I'm sitting there in the lobby, and I was watching the people come in, and many of them were elderly, and they were in wheelchairs. And there was this one girl who was greeting them and finding out where they had to go and directing them, and uh, she was really good at what she did, uh, you know, some elderly people can be kind of uh, honorary. And uh, this one guy comes in, and he was, like, miserable. You know, and no matter how miserable he got, she never stopped being nice to him, never stopped being good to him. And that's sort of a, an illustration of it. You know, and she was good to him and helped him in spite of him. But that's not really agape because she is human, and there's going to come a breaking point. If she was with this guy 24-7, there would come a time, I'm sure, where she would say, i got to get out of here before I kill somebody. You know, God doesn't have a breaking point. God, the Bible says, is agape. Agape, self-sacrificing love. Uh, It's been described as unconditional love. No conditions attached to it. Um, It's that God has chosen to love us in spite of us. And it's always in spite of us. He, he, he loves us in spite of us. He uses us to serve him in spite of us. He blesses us in spite of us. It has to be that way, or else God doesn't get the glory. It's always in spite of us. Uh, Jude said, keep yourself in the love of God. And that doesn't mean that, okay, God loves you, uh, but don't do anything that will make him change his mind. You know, keep yourself in the love of God doesn't mean that. It means depend totally on the unchanging love, grace, and mercy of God in your life and not depending on anything else. Keep yourself 
and the love of God, only depending on that agape love, that God is going to love you in spite of yourself. Again, this was written to believers. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Uh, the next thing that John's always talking about in 1 John is abiding. He, he speaks a lot about abiding. Abiding is finding a good place and staying there. Your search is over. You don't have to look any further. You know, I'm here in this place and I'm staying here because this place is perfect. There's nothing better. Abiding. John 15.9 says, Jesus said, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. That's the perfect place. I don't want to move. That's where I want to stay forever. Abide in my love. And then another theme that John talks about is light. He, he talks a lot about light in his epistle. Uh, light, that which chases away darkness. The light. And lastly, he, in the very last sentence in this epistle, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He talks, and this whole, this whole epistle is geared for us to know Jesus Christ in truth, to know him in truth. This is what the Spirit can give us. I heard one preacher say that First John is the woodshed, and that's where, in the old days, Parents used to send their kids out to the woodshed to get a switch, you know. And he said, First John is the, is the woodshed. And it can seem that way. And sometimes when I read it and I see, you know, what God is encouraging us to do, you know, I think to myself, man, I, I really don't know how poor, blind, miserable, and naked I am. But ultimately, if the Spirit gives us understanding of what John is writing here, the words that Jesus said, Come to me, and I will give you rest are fulfilled. If, we, if the Spirit gives us true understanding of these words, of what John is telling us, and knowing Jesus Christ in truth, that, that rest is there for us. That's the purpose. Rest. Again, it's an epistle written to believers, those who know the truth. And, and if by the Spirit what is said in this book is done, by the Spirit. It is a witness to this world that no one can deny. Uh, the church, if we hear what the Spirit says in this letter and do it and receive it, I should say, from the Lord, then the church is truly going to be a light on a hill that cannot be hidden. And there is what a, a necessity that is in these days today, that the church is that light on a hill that cannot be hidden. So, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. Divinity in human flesh. He was totally human. Totally, he is totally God. He still is. He's a glorified man. Divinity. 
Uh, Jesus, when he was with his disciples, when he was with the apostles in the Bible, it says he told them that he was going away. He says, I'm going away, and you know where I'm going, and you know the way. And they came to him, and they said, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that's where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And Philip said, show us the Father. Show us God. And that will be sufficient for us. Yeah, that would be nice. Show us God. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says to him, Philip, you've seen me, you've seen God. Colossians, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. When you look in the mirror, that image is you. It's not anybody else. It's not, it's not like somebody else. It's you. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. When the word of God, our creator, became flesh, his was the birthright over all the earth. The only begotten son. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And it speaks not just of the beginning of creation, but eternity past, you know, which is hard to comprehend. In Sunday school, I like to get the kids thinking about this. You know, in eternity in the future is incomprehensible to us, but we, we can kind of, with our limited minds, kind of semi-wrap our heads around it, that it's just, you know, the future is going to go on forever. But eternity in the past, going back forever, you know, that'll make your head explode thinking about it. He says in the Bible, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says. In Hebrews, it says, But to the Son, he says, And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Uh, John 1, verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Genesis, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And the Bible says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We sing, there's a song that we sing, and one of the lyrics is, send forth your word and let there be light. And we need to pray for that in these days that we're living in. And, you know, as we get closer and closer to the end, and we, and we see biblical prophecy coming true, we need to pray, let there be light, that the darkness would flee. In Revelations, it says, The city, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Darkness masquerading as light is enveloping the world. And we see so many examples of that. And, you know... People have a ministry of prophecy, and you can stand up and you can give example after example after example, and it's just depressing uh, because darkness masquerading as light is just overtaking this entire world. We need to pray, let there be light. And again, as we 
talked about before, the number one thing that the church needs to be doing is to be praying for the Holy Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit. There is, I don't think there's anything more important for us to be doing. And back in 1 John, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. Uh, John is saying we were with him, we saw him, we heard him, we fellowshiped with him, we camped out with him, we ate with him, and, and he was a human being. He was a human being, divinity in flesh. In John's gospel, uh, Thomas, doubting Thomas, Jesus appears, Thomas wasn't there, and the disciples tell Thomas, you know, we've seen the Lord, and Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my hand in his side and touch the wounds. And so they're all together, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognized who he is, you know, humanity, divine God in human flesh. My Lord and my God. And it says, concerning the word of life, is there anything more powerful in, than words? I, I don't think there really is. There, there is nothing, there is no force, earthly force, more powerful than words. They can build up and they can destroy. Proverbs, Solomon said that he wrote Proverbs for his children in order to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding. Jesus healed the sick with words. He, blind people would come up to him and he would say, see, and they would be able to see. Just his words would heal people. He raised the dead with words. Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus came out of the tomb. He created the earth, the heavens and the earth with words. God said, let there be, and everything was created. The word of God. God uses words to save people. He called Lazarus out of the tomb with words, and he raises the dead today. Uh, the Bible says that we are dead in sins before Christ, that we are born with a sinful nature. Our spirits are dead, and people need to be raised from the dead. And, that's, and through the words of the gospel, the Lord raises people from the dead. And we have to realize that only Jesus can raise people from the dead. And that's what we need to be praying for. Lord, raise the dead. Raise the dead. Only you can. And heal the sick. He healed the sick with words. And I'm sick. I need to be healed. I need to be able to see. And I need to be able to hear the truth. And my lameness needs to be healed that I can walk and follow him. He heals the sick today by the knowledge of the words of absolute truth. We need to be praying for these things. John's gospel, Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away after he gave his bread of life sermon and people said we don't understand and the multitudes left. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we know this. You know, Jesus has the words of eternal life. We don't understand everything. We can't comprehend everything, but we know that, that these are the words of eternal life. <clears throat> Verse 2, 
the life was manifested. The only source of life that there ever was, ever will be, was manifested in human form. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us that we have seen and heard and we declare to you. <clears throat> they declared it. The writers of the gospel, the writers of the epistle, John, they declared what they saw and what they heard firsthand. We are declaring this to you to our peril. Most of them were murdered for what they declared. John was exiled to a pile of rocks, tortured during his life for what he declared. And again, we talked about it before, but no one in their right mind would be willing to suffer hardship and death for a lie that they originated. It, it, what they declare has to be the truth. Uh, no one lives as long as John did. He died an old man. No one lives as long as John did and believed every day of his life, followed Jesus, and declared the truth every day of his life, preached every day of his life, suffered hardship, torture, exile. Uh, nobody would do that for a lie, for what they knew was a lie. That what they declared was the truth. You don't go to the end of your days declaring to your own peril what you know is not true. So we can trust what they declare. It's the word of God. We know it to be. We declare it that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> fellowship, the word is koinonia, a common, living, living breathing, sharing relationship with another person. It's a common thread that unites individuals. And there's all sorts of fellowships. The other day I was cleaning out a closet and I found my high school yearbook. Scary. And I was going through it and looking at it and there was all sorts of fellowships back then. There was all sorts of clubs. There was biology club, stamp club, drama club, chess club, there was like you know, a whole mess of clubs, and, and they were fellowships. All these individuals come together and had this one thing in common, this one point of interest, and they had fellowship. And it was interesting, if you look at my yearbook, they had photos of all the clubs, and a friend and I are in every single photo of every single club. We didn't belong to any of them but we snuck into every picture uh, for the yearbook. Uh, the only one that ever gave us trouble was the National Honor Society. They take things so seriously, those people. You know how they are. Um, we have fellowship with more people than anything on earth. We have fellowship with believers in the past, present, and future, and our fellowship is eternal, eternal with all these people. We talk about many things in church. You know, we have small talk. We talk about, is there going to be football this year, the weather, and all these things. And, and that's good. It's nice to talk to people who are believers about everything. But our fellowship is centered on Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with the creator of the universe. You know, think about that. The creator of the universe desires to have fellowship with us. And, and it's available for us. We're in the same family. 
First uh, John in chapter 3, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, we're in the same family. We have, it's, it's like more than an earthly fellowship. It, it's a forever family. A living, breathing, sharing, loving relationship with one another that is eternal. You know, in Sunday school, I talk about this and I tell the kids, you know, you're going to be looking at this face forever. And they go, ew. And then there's always one kid who'll stand up and say, yeah, but you're going to have a new body so it won't be so bad. The eternal fellowship of believers, eternity, and we can have fellowship with the creator of the universe. Can it get any better than that? To have that kind of fellowship with one another and that kind of fellowship with our creator. Eternal life. Verse 4, he says, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John says, this is why, a whole purpose, this is why I'm writing this track to you. That your joy would be full. Joy is what God desires us to have. You know, I, I feel sorry for people who walk around and it's like they have this idea of God, that God's up there just waiting for them to mess up. Or God is angry with them. Uh, or disgusted or is ready to give up on them. You know, God, his desire for us to have is joy. And we know it because it's the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in Galatians, it says the fruit of the Spirit is first love, then joy. This is what God wants us to have, what he wants to give us. <clears throat> that when by the Spirit, the word of God is planted in our hearts, and by the Spirit, it bears fruit, that fruit is first love and then joy. God wants us to have joy. The best we can hope for in this world is the pursuit of happiness. Happiness is fleeting. Uh, <clears throat> the other morning, I woke up and I was happy, which is unusual for me waking up. And I was happy and I went downstairs and I was happy. And I got made a nice cup of strong coffee and just smelling that made me even happier. And I got a bagel and toasted it to perfection and buttered it and put on strawberry cream cheese and I was doing a happy dance. And I'm carrying it out to the front porch, and I'm going to sit on the front porch. It was a nice breeze, and I'm going to go out there and read. And I go to open the door, and I tip the plate, and my bagel falls on the floor face down. I knew my life would never be the same. Happiness just fled. Uh, happiness is like being on a boat on a nice day. Uh, you're enjoying it. You're enjoying your you're, everything is right with the world. And then you look down, and there's a hole in the boat, and you're starting to sink. And the happiness just flees. Joy is being on a boat on a nice day, and you're thanking the Lord, and everything is not only right in the world, everything is right in the universe. And you look down, and there's a hole in the boat, and you start to sink, but you have no doubt at all that you're going to be saved. Joy. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and all the priests gathered all the people in the courtyard and they read the book of the law to them. And it says in 
the book of Nehemiah, when the people heard the law being read to them, they started weeping uh, because they realized, they must have realized, man, this is God's standard. You know, we, we fall so short of it. You know, we are so far away from God. We have failed so badly. And they began to weep. And in Nehemiah, it says, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave them the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. And he said to them, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. If you don't have the joy of the Lord, you have no strength. You weep. And the Levites quieted the people and said, do not be grieved, and all their people. And after they understood, they had a party that lasted like two weeks because they understood the words that were declared to them. The joy of the Lord is your strength. John is writing this, he says, that our joy may be full. That's the purpose. And again, if our joy isn't full, we have no strength. That's our strength. And so how do we get this fullness of joy? I think the main word is understanding. Understanding. Understanding the grace, knowing the grace and the love of God. Our joy is full. And, you know, some would say, well, you know, grace and love, you know, isn't there anything else? There isn't. There really isn't anything else than the grace, love, and mercy of God. And, and, and John is writing to believers. You know, there is judgment. You know, as, as Pastor Rob says, uh, people who are not saved, they have to know that there is an escape from judgment in order for them to receive that escape. But for the church, it's just the love of God. Everything that happens in the life of the church is the mercy of God. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit. We need to pray for understanding. And there's no way of reaching and clawing up to that. It has to be given to us. And as we prayed earlier, John also wrote that the Lord said, if we, act, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we're going to receive it. If we ask according to his will, and that wanting that joy, asking for the Holy Spirit, he hears us, and we can, we're, we're going to get it. He's going, he desires to give it to us more than we desire to get it. Verse 5, it says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. <clears throat> there is no badness in God. Everything that happens in the life of a believer is the mercy of God. Light illuminates. You can see where you're going. You can see things as they really are. You know, if you've ever been out in the woods at night and you see the shadows and you're not sure what that is and you shine the flashlight and you can see things as they really are. God is light. Light chases the darkness away. There is no deception. There is only absolute eternal truth with God. God is light. Jesus said he is the light of the world. Uh, turn to John chapter 8, please. 
in John chapter 8, in this chapter, Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. Uh, but you can't really pass over what preceded him saying that. And in verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. You know, wouldn't you have loved to have been there, to hear, actually hear verbally Jesus' teaching? And they were able to do that. They were able to hear him. And the disciples, you know, he was preparing them for ministry. So they not only were they able to hear him, but they were able to see him and watch him, to watch how he related to people, you know, how he responded to people. They saw God with them. It says in verse 3, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And they said, and, they, and when they had set her in the midst... They said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So this woman was practicing sexual sin. She was, it was a lifestyle for her. They had been watching her. Uh, they caught her in the act. They must have had a stakeout you know, to, to watch her, uh, to watch her movements, to catch her in the very act. And they grab her and they drag her in front of all these people in front of Jesus. This was not a good day for her. At verse 5, it says, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? You know, is that true? Does the law that God gave to Moses command that she should be stoned? And basically it does. Uh, there were a lot of capital punishment sins, uh, someone practicing adultery, uh, sexual sin of any kind, contrary to the word of God, uh, was punishable by death. There were a lot of things that were, uh, homicide was punishable by death, rape was punishable by death, uh, kidnapping in order to enslave someone was punishable by death. There's a whole list of things uh, that were capital sins. <clears throat> Uh, but there, it, it, there, it wasn't a witch hunt. It wasn't, uh, a, a, there, had, there was a trial. There had to be two or more witnesses. Uh, if you disobeyed a court order, uh, it was capital offense. If you lied in court, if you brought false witness against someone, it was a capital offense. And, and it was to preserve the society chosen by God, the Jews, Israel, in order to fulfill his purpose. And his purpose was that the Messiah would come out of Israel. And if Israel was destroyed by the perversion of the word of God, then God's plan of salvation would have been thwarted, which is impossible to happen. The willful practicing of unrepentant sin had to be dealt with uh, in the, under the old covenant. Sin had to be dealt with. If it spread, then the society, the culture, would be destroyed. And that goes for our society, for our culture. Uh, sin has to be dealt with. Back then, sin was dealt with by eliminating the person who would destroy life, the person who was unrepentant, the person who it became a lifestyle for and kept doing it and doing it and doing it and wouldn't change and was influencing others and that disease was spreading through the whole culture, uh, that sin was dealt with by removing the person, 
that would destroy life. Under the new covenant, it's eliminating the sin that would destroy life through the cross. Uh, and the word is practicing. Yes, she, the law said she should have been stoned, but there was always forgiveness and repentance available under the law. That forgiveness and repentance was always there with the Lord. Grace has always been there. Verse 6, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. If they said, if, if Jesus said, okay, yeah, you're right, the law says stone her to death, so go ahead, kill her. Uh, they would have said, oh, so this is the person that you're hearing this message of righteousness, grace, and mercy, and he wants to kill this sinner? Well, I guess there's no hope for you in this Jesus then. If he said, don't stone her, they would have said, look, a total regard for the law, a total regard for our traditions that we hold so sacred. He's a sinner who eats with sinners. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. You know, Jesus is so cool. You know, I, I, Christian, I've heard people say Christianity is not cool. Jesus is not cool. You know, cool is an earthly label uh, put on on what the world admires. But Jesus is like eternal cool. I mean, he just, he just ignores them. They're accusing him. There's a poor woman standing there. Uh, people are waiting to hear what, what he's going to say. Uh, they're yelling. Uh, there's all this confusion. And Jesus just stoops down and just starts doodling on the ground, you know, giving him a chance to walk away. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Whoever is without sin, you throw the first stone. Can we, as Christians, judge? Can we judge what is right and what is wrong? Absolutely. We can judge right and wrong because God has told us in his word. God has told us, don't do that do this. This is right. This is wrong. It's in the word of God. And if we see someone doing something that God says is wrong, we can say that behavior is wrong because God says it is in his word. But can we judge a person? No. Never. First Timothy says, in the first place, we can't judge a person. Jesus said, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. Uh, we are sinners. You know, well, I'm not as bad a sinner as them. You know, I'm a saved sinner. You know, I, truth be known, I'm a worse sinner. I know the truth, and I still sin. We can't throw the first stone. First uh, Timothy says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is going to judge the living and the dead. Uh, Luke, Jesus said, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. It, it is a sin to condemn another human being. We just, it's way above our pay grade, so to speak. We are not given that. Uh, we cannot judge the living, and we cannot judge the dead either. Uh, we know that if a person dies in their sin without receiving salvation through Christ, that they will suffer 
eternal separation from God, that they will suffer the flames of hell. But we cannot judge the living or the dead. Only one can do that. Uh, we know people who have passed on, uh, maybe people in our families that have passed on. And to our observation, there was no evidence that they ever received Christ. And, and we think they didn't make it. You know, how do we know? We know there's only one way, but how do we know? Uh, there is only one way to heaven, but as Paul said, love hopes all things. Uh, the thief on the cross in the gospel, if you had known him, if you had lived back then and known him, and you had observed his life, and you had seen his arrest, and you saw his trial and his conviction, and saw him crucified, saw him on the cross because of his sin and his crime, uh, you would probably say, he, he's lost. He's lost. But that would have been a wrong judgment. We can judge right from wrong. Uh, we can judge what will give life and what will destroy life, but we have not been given to judge people, the living or the dead. James says there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? You know, judging people. God has not given us that burden. Thank God. God has not given us that burden so that we can be free to do what he has commanded us to do, and that is to love other people. So in verse 8, it says, And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So those who have had more time to sin were the first to leave. And, you know, it, it's a blessing to fellowship with people who have been walking with the Lord for years. You know, I, I love talking to older saints like I'm not old. Uh, I don't feel old. But, you know, it's a blessing to be fellowshipping with older saints because, for the most part, they are the most gracious people. And the reason they're most gracious is because they've experienced more success and more failure than a younger person. And they know the grace of God. They know the love of God. John wrote, I write to you fathers, you older people, because you have known him who is from the beginning. So Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And that's how everyone ends up. It, now there's just Jesus and this woman. Everybody ends up that way. Everything that a person held dear, whether good or not so good, is gone. And they're alone with God in the end and accountable to God. Verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. God's desire, he basically wants one thing. He wants us to do one thing. He wants us to live. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is not what she was probably expecting to hear from the only one who could have thrown the first stone. 
Uh, here's this woman. She has lived a lifestyle practicing what God has told her not to do. And now she's standing there and she's looking into the eyes of her creator, the judge of the living and the dead. And what does she see looking into his eyes? Anger? No. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, a person doesn't experience hearing those words and a person doesn't experience receiving the grace and mercy of God and continue to practice in that which would destroy them. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If a person says that they love the sunshine, but they spend all their days in a cave, they're not telling the truth. Sin breaks fellowship with God and with one another. A person who is in fellowship with God cannot live in sin, the Bible says. You know, we sin, we mess up, and people can go a long time, but because his seed remains in us, we, we, we cannot remain in that. Uh, if a person is in fellowship with God, the light will expose and sin will be confessed. We cannot live not being in fellowship with God. Don't you hate it when I do, I know I do, when I sin and I can feel that broken fellowship with God? Is there anything worse than that on earth? You feel condemned. You're not condemned, but you feel condemned. Verse 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, always in that illuminating light that makes darkness flee. God said, let there be light. And that should be our prayer. Let there be light. Lord, let there be light that the darkness in me would flee. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We're able to minister to one another. Now the purpose in Titus, it says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, a good conscience. You know, how do we maintain a good conscience? By walking in that illuminating light, which is the love of God. When darkness is exposed in us, we confess it and let the light chase it away, and the darkness flees. One person wrote that our attitude under grace should be to be certain of God's future favor, yet to be ever more tender in conscience towards him. It says, in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. If we confess sins, he is faithful not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us, that that light will chase that darkness away. He is faithful. Uh, Tell, we tell the kids in Sunday school, there are two words that God will, you will never hear from God, go away. And there are two words that you will always hear from God, come closer, always. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The end. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And we do pray for understanding of these things, Lord. 
May your spirit give us understanding that we would know you in truth, uh, that we would know grace, that we would know your love. Uh, Lord, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that we would serve you, that we would worship you. Uh, we just praise you, Lord. We, we don't have the words to thank you enough or to praise you enough for your goodness toward us, Lord. So we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.